Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. All right, welcome back to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. I'm Chris Mercer, and I'm here with the great Paul Kaminsky. Hi, Paul. Hi, everyone. It's good to be here. I love Take It Away. I'm a big fan of this show. I am ready to talk some Paul McCartney. All right. And as Ryan's other major collaborator, I feel like you're not even a guest here. Pretty much a part of the Take It Away family, as far as I'm concerned. I'm like so. I'm like a weird cousin who's unemployed and sleeping <laughs> on the couch, but who also has very strong feelings about everything you're talking about. <laughs> and knows everything about what I'm talking about, so we're in good shape here. This was a tough one for me. Uh, your reactions are going to be a, probably a bit more thought out than mine. It took me a while to finally listen to this album, given what has happened. So it's really been in the last week or so I've been getting to know it. And of course, in the last few days, I've really, uh, really dug in. Uh, I'm enjoying it. I'm in the mood for it. So yeah, it's been a good experience once I've gotten into it, but it took me a while to get started. Yeah. Um, I was telling you at the beginning, 2005 will be the last time, Chaos and Creation, that Ryan wasn't there to compare notes with me. Right. So it's, wow, it's heavy. It's heavy. But I think we're doing a good thing here. And I think we both want to talk about McCartney 3. Yeah. You got any general reactions to the album before we later on get into the track by track? Well, I just, I guess at the top here, first of all, thank you for having me on this show. I was kidding earlier about sleeping on your couch, but the 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 point stands. I am a big fan of this show and I just love talking about this stuff. And I, I really do consider it an honor to be here and, and thank you everybody at home for joining us or in the car, wherever you are. We can see you, by the way. The analytics can tell us that. <laughs> I think it's interesting you say that about this being the first one in a long time without Ryan. And um, and so one of the things that I really grew to appreciate more about this album, doing the research, was just what an inspiration it is to me that Paul is still so vital and he's still so positive and he's still so creative. Like, you know, any other 78-year-old might just hang it up, but like, it, it's like he's 22 when you hear him, like l- reading these interviews, even listening to the music. I think his voice is actually great on this album. And there's, I mean, there's been moments in the last few records where I went, <laughs> but... This one, I just, I was, I'm so impressed with his tenacity and his drive to be the best still, you know? It's just, it's really, it's kind of remarkable. And that positivity and that tenacity and that drive is something that actually reminds me a lot of Ryan. It really does. And I think it explains partly why maybe Ryan found such a kinship with Paul's music. I think they shared a lot in common. So, Anyway, that's sort of the preamble here. The other big thing for me on this, and this isn't going to be a big deal for you, Chris, but it's a big deal for me, is that I found out about this record waking up 
you know, West Coast time to an announcement that Third Man Records, Jack White's record label, was going to be putting out a version, wound up being two versions of McCartney 3. So not only did I get, oh my God, McCartney 3 is confirmed because there'd been some rumblings for a while, but I got, hey, your other favorite artist's record label is going to help put it out. And my Mm. brain melted out of my, my brain actually, (laughs) it didn't melt. It jumped out of my skull and ran out of the room. And I was a little disappointed because Again, West Coast time, I missed the three dot one that's going for five gajillion dollars on eBay right now. I missed it. I was so bummed, but I did get a red copy. I missed it all, yeah. I ended up just with the CD. Yeah. The which one? Now, I have the green CD. Do you have the green one? Which one do you have? I think I have the standard issue CD. I just went to Amazon and got that in the new Elvis Costello because I was behind on both of them. Yeah. But it's funny. I was, I was texting with Ryan that whole morning. I was like, oh man, can you, are you able to get this one? He's like, no, I wasn't able to. I was like, oh, there's still a couple copies of the red one left. So he and I were both like going through and getting our copies together, which was fun. And I also know that he got a chance to listen to, if not all, most of this album, you know? So that actually makes me feel happy that he was able to hear it. Wow. So he heard it long before I did. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We were going back and forth about the fact that we were going to do it. And he was sending me regular updates on it. But I had first heard about it from a friend of mine. My friend Jonathan had sent me a, a link to a rumor. And I had written to Ryan, who who didn't even know what I was talking about. Yeah. I wrote him and said, McCartney 3? And <laughs> he was like, so he started talking about something else. I'm like, no, 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 wait. I'm, I'm serious. That McCartney 3 seems to be coming out. Yeah. Yeah. I think we may have hit him up around the same time because he had a similar reaction. I, cause I told him about the chatter on the Hoffman forums and he was like, what are you talking about? And so I, yeah, I, I'm happy that I was able, and it sounds like you were able to at least be able to share in the excitement of an upcoming McCartney yes. release with Ryan. So that was good. But Actually, yeah. it's funny because that's how my friend Jonathan told me. He sent me a text that said McCartney three question mark. And I wrote back, some people say it's curious and creation. Other people say it's electric arguments. <laughs> I thought he was saying, which one is McCartney 3? Oh, like, love that. If you had to name one. Yeah. I love that. That's really good. That's really, really good. I mean, those are two great picks for what McCartney 3 would be. But I would submit that there's that Flaming Pie is also a contender for McCartney 3. Well, you know, I was thinking about it. Like, what is it that makes a, an album part of the McCartney series? And it's not the one-man band routine. Because he does that on a lot of albums, including a lot of Egypt Station and Chaos and Creation and a bunch of albums. He's the one-man band. It's really the stuck at home for a while yeah. that makes it a McCartney series album. Yeah. Well, you know, why don't we get into a little bit of the story here about how the album came about. And that may tie into some of the other stuff we're talking about here, because something you just mentioned is is a part of the story. and. I have some crazy theories about some other things, so I'm just going to go ahead and bring up my conspiracy board here and tie some shoestring. (laughs) Um, But I guess the place to start the McCartney 3 discussion is really (laughs) COVID-19, right? McCartney... In the gatefold, there's a picture of a mask. That's right, that's right, yeah. Yeah. So Paul was still riding high on Egypt Station. That was released in 2019. That was a number one album, and, you know, he had that big show at Dodger Stadium, which I was uh, privileged to be in the audience for, where Ringo came out, and that was the end of his the American leg of that tour, and he was scheduled to go on and play more places in Britain, 
He was due to hit some European countries and culminate the tour at Glastonbury, the Glastonbury Festival. But when all that got canceled with COVID-19, he suddenly found himself with a lot of time on his hands. And that's the thing that Paul credits as the common denominator between this record and the other two installments in the McCartney series. He was sitting around with lots of time on his hands all of a sudden. So it's like the suddenness too. And I think some of that is revisionist on the part of McCartney 2 at least because we know that Wings was still together when McCartney 2 was he was holing up in his house for like that summer right yeah that's true that's true too it wasn't really officially the end of the Wings era yet that was 81 but he in his mind blends it all together you know anyway Paul (laughs) Paul told CBS everyone in lockdown was cleaning out their closets so that's what I did but with songs (laughs) that was funny (laughs) so here's where it gets kind of cool um, so the Flaming Pie box set and I bet you you didn't think I'd start talking about the Flaming Pie box set well I did actually oh you did God, <laughs> die, he got me the Flaming Pie box set caused him to revisit a song from that era and they were going to include it as a bonus track we'll get to what song that is in a moment I have they, a lot to say about it when we get to it but yeah yeah they were going to include that as a bonus track on the Flaming Pie box, but Paul got to thinking, I, you know, I kind of like this song. And so he contacted his buddy, Jeff Dunbar, who people listening to this show will remember as his animation cohort. He's featured prominently in the World Tonight documentary where they go into Tropical Island Hum and the like. And Dunbar was going to craft a animated feature. I don't know if you call it a feature or a short. It's a little unclear, but around this song or the idea of this song and so this is early in the year and in order to do that paul needed to first make sure that the song was finished and he was also asked by dunbar to do a bit of incidental music and so he's in england nancy his wife is in america with family when lockdown hits suddenly nobody can go anywhere but paul's only 20 minutes from his studio And he's staying uh, with his daughter, Mary, and four of his eight grandkids all in one house. And And this is all during part of that initial lockdown. So he's chipping away at this music, right, in the studio, and he suddenly kind of finds it therapeutic. And he suddenly kind of finds it like the thing he needs to get over the fact that this global pandemic is so crazy and devastating and putting a pause on the music business you know i mean a lot of artists dealt with it in different ways but paul you know he's he's paul he's always going a mile a minute he had all these tour dates he had all these projects and suddenly poof there we go so he says i had to stay in one place and the government said only go to work if you can't work from home well my studio is 20 minutes from where i live and there was this animated feature that needed to be finished so i had to be in the studio for that then what happened was I quite liked it. I kind of made it a daily practice. And he told loudandquiet.com, oh, this is nice. I'm enjoying this. This is a nice way to spend lockdown. So I ended up finishing off some songs, looking for bits and bobs, making it up, and generally enjoying myself in the studio. And then I'd come home in the evening, and I just happened to be with my daughter Mary's family. The combination of being able to go to work, make some music, and then hang out with four of my grandkids. I was very lucky. You know, we were being super careful, but being able to make music really helped. 
So he'd record during the day, and then during the evening, he started to enjoy it when Mary or one of the kids would ask him what he'd be doing that day. And so he took it as a challenge to make sure he always had something good to play for them around dinner time when they were making dinner. <laughs> yeah. And so it was more like he wants to impress them, right? And so yeah. he, there suddenly becomes an expectation, and then the McCartney competitiveness kicks in. And suddenly, an album starts taking shape. And I think this story is super cute. The idea that this all started with him trying to make an animated feature and then was spurred on by the fact that he didn't want to look like an like a jerk in front of his grandkids. I think it's really cute. <laughs> it makes me think too of him like writing songs like Great Day to play for the kids back in the 70s, you know? Yeah. Or Hey Diddle or Entertain the Family. Yeah. yeah. So he told Zane Lowe the whole world was going mad. Making music, it kind of saved me. And Zane asks him, can you be still? And Paul says, yeah, I can be still. I like to meditate and stuff, but I like to have a guitar nearby. Because <laughs> <laughs> he might have to write 10 songs There's, real fast. <laughs> it's just classic Paul. Classic, classic Paul. So now he's got an album brewing. And to bring this around to McCartney and McCartney 2, those were also circumstances where he didn't necessarily know it was an album brewing right away. I mean, in the case of McCartney 2, he certainly didn't know. I mean, he was just making right. insanity in his bathroom, for God's sake. To play in the car. Right. Yeah. And so that is another similarity between all three chapters of the trilogy. So then an album starts to take shape. Uh, Paul was doing the recording at his Hog Hill Mill in Rye between April and June of 2020. And he didn't realize he was making a record until he had a little pile of tunes. Again, from the loud and quiet interview, Paul said, I'd just been stockpiling tracks and I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do with all of this. I guess I'll hang on to it. And then he thought, wait a minute, this is a McCartney record because I played everything and I'd done it in the same manner as McCartney 1 and McCartney 2. That was a little light bulb going off and I thought, well, at least that makes a point of explaining what I've been doing unbeknownst to me. But I guess the main thrust for making it become a record actually came from his management team. And he wound up liking the idea because once he had these songs together, he brought it to management and it was pointed out to him that McCartney was 1970, McCartney 2 was 1980, and that 2020 was kind of a nice round number. Mm -hmm. in a similar fashion and so McCartney wound up liking that idea and that's when the rush was on to get this out in the calendar year 2020 <laughs> wow they barely made it they barely barely <laughs> made it yeah so the album was announced on October 21st 2020 in a surprise that took everybody except Taylor Swift by surprise and that'll make sense in a moment the album was produced uh, by Paul with credits given to the producers of the two older tracks that he pulled from on the album. And again, we'll get to those. But Greg Kirsten and George Martin did have some tangential connection to some of these tracks. And mastering was by Randy Merrill at Sterling Sound and engineered by a whole bunch of people at Hog Hill. The album wound up being released on December 18th, 2020 on Capitol Records, who he's back with these days. The original release date was actually December 11th, but the album was pushed back due to some of the difficulties in coordinating the many dozens of vinyl variations. So it'll be no surprise to any of our listeners that there are a ton of variations 
of this record. Uh, the album art is of a die with the three dots on it. And you get some typography on the top that says McCartney. Three, it's very simple, but what it lends itself to is variation. And so they started slapping all kinds of different colors on these things. And there are just, there's so many, I'm not going to read a Ryan list about them, but just imagine every color in the rainbow and there you go. My mind's just black and white. So I guess I have the standard issue, right? Yeah. You have the baseline. Yeah. The actual cover. The one you'll find at Walmart probably. Right, right, right. <laughs> Another thing I love about this record is that there was some coordination in the release of the record with Taylor Swift because Paul and Taylor did an interview together for Rolling Stone, Musicians on Musicians or something to that effect. And Paul was talking about the new record with Taylor and Taylor intimated to Paul in email after the interview that she was planning the surprise release of a follow-up to her album from over the summer folklore called Evermore. Nobody knew about it. But she basically emailed him and said, hey, I was going to put this out on my birthday, which is December 10th. And I see your album's coming out on December 10th, so I'm going to move it. I'm going to move it for you. And Paul was really flattered by that. And, you know, thank you. Because she would have crushed him. (laughs) She would have crushed him like a bug. (laughs) Like a bug, yes. And so Paul said, great. And then they wound up having to bump it back. to December 18th, which was when Taylor Swift was going to release her record. So then she moved it back to the 11th for Paul. So she actually went out of her way to really accommodate him. And I think that's just so sweet. I love that those two became friends. It's very, very special to me. I'm amazed that it didn't just completely overshadow Paul's album anyway, because I remember it being a big deal. whenever that was, six weeks ago, that suddenly Taylor Swift had an album. Yeah, so she moved her album around not once, but twice for Paul McCartney, and that is awesome of her to do that. She still wound up beating him anyway in the Billboard Top 200. Her album was so popular that it didn't matter that it was... um, It didn't matter that it wasn't in the same week as as the McCartney debut. Paul wound up debuting at number two in Billboard, which we'll get to later in the press and stuff, but... I think it's just a nice gesture that she did. That's all. So we talked a little bit about the cover art. Paul is credited with the art direction with Nick Steinhardt, who is credited with the art itself and the design for the package. We have that sparse image of the dice with the number on the dots. And I think it's a fun way to play on the title. Ed Russia came up with the typography Mary McCartney and Sonny McCartney and Paul are credited with the photography on the record, which is nice because there's a nice symmetry to that since Linda did the majority of the photography for McCartney and McCartney 2. And it's just kind of nice. Keep it in the family like that, you know? Yeah. And in the liner note for the record, even it says in parentheses, it's a family affair, exclamation mark, right right. right next to that credit. Yeah. Yeah. And all the different versions of the album have different pictures on the inside which i didn't realize until i got my know that yeah i got my target version of the cd which is green and that has different pictures in it and then the third man version i have which is red has different pictures so i I talked a little bit about the third man records editions those are really cool and on my other podcast we actually sat down with the co-founder and co-owner of third man records mr ben blackwell ben told us the story of what happened and how they got involved with Paul, and I'll give you the Cliff Notes version, but it's actually really funny. It's maybe July, and the storefronts are open again. Third Man Records has two storefronts, one in Nashville, one in Detroit. 
Ben Blackwell sitting in his office and the lady behind the counter comes to Ben's office and says, uh, hey, somebody claiming to be Paul McCartney's manager is at the door. And Ben goes, what? And so he thought it was a joke. <laughs> so he Googled what the name of Paul McCartney's manager is. And then he said, okay, if this guy, go back and ask him what his name is. If this guy says his name is Scott Roger, that's the only way you can let him in. So she goes over and she comes back. She says, ah, his name's Scott Roger. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> so that's when they went, oh. So they went and met up with him and they gave him the tour. Scott had said, oh, we've heard some nice things about what you guys have done. Third Man has done a lot of stuff with different legacy acts, Iggy Pop, Prince, Neil Young, you know, contemporaries of McCartney. Yeah, so when they were talking to Scott, they said, well, why don't you put on a concert here at Third Man? We have a stage. That's the thing people do, you know? You could do that, you know? Maybe that's a great way to collaborate. And he said, oh, yeah, well, I'll think about it. And then a couple months later, they got the phone call. Hey, bad news is we don't want to do a concert because COVID's still happening. Good news is we're going to put out an album called McCartney 3, your third man records, the number three is kind of your thing. That's like Jack White's favorite number. He's obsessed with the numerology of it. Uh, Let's do a version. And so that's how it came about. So I just love that they just, <laughs> Scott <laughs> Roger just showed up at the door. <laughs> man. Wow. <laughs> Which is really funny to me. What a world to find yourself in. <laughs> I know. And then the last thing I'll get to is there's a dedication on the album to sound engineer Eddie Klein, who when you look up his credits online, you'll find he worked with Paul for a long time, including vocal contributions on Press to Play and some arrangement contributions on Uele Sole and the reissues of Band on the Run and the Pure McCartney package, just lots of stuff. So I guess this guy had worked with Paul for a long time and he had died in in the last year. And so the album is dedicated to Eddie Klein. And it was interesting because I'd never heard of that guy before just his name never came up in my travels but i thought that was cool so that's the story of how mccartney 3 came to be i just love that it starts with the flaming pie reissue and ends with him and taylor swift being best friends and that's just that just makes me smile <laughs> <laughs> well yeah that that's a great story and you know thanks for conveying all of that so succinctly and so clearly yeah interesting so here we are then you know this all happened we've got this album and it's as close to a McCartney series album as you're going to get. Fits the bill. Put the three on it. Put the die on the cover. And here we are. Here we are. McCartney three. Uh, we talked a little earlier about some general responses to the album. But now that we are getting into the tracks, do you have anything else you want to say about the feel of the album? I found it, it's jammy. Yeah. Perhaps jammy to a fault at times. Yeah. I feel like the songs that have deep in the title are awfully jammy. <laughs> Thanks for identifying them clearly in the titles, Paul, but... <laughs> yeah, I like the jamminess. I'm actually open to the laid-back feel of it. Maybe it's the mood I'm in, but yeah. it does just kind of like, yeah, you know, it's Paul, he's going to lay down some drums, we'll see what kind of bass line we come up with. You know, I, I kind of don't mind it, at least right now. What can I say? It only wears thin on me on one of the tracks. Okay. Every other one I like. You know, he found a lot of licks and different kinds of hooks to hang these songs on. And I usually like them. And so mm -hmm. when we get to these, like there's only one instance and it's one of the deeps. 
Okay. That I won't tell you which. That's just a little bit of suspense for everybody. Um, The other deep is my favorite. So there's even more suspense for you. Oh, okay. Yeah. So on the other podcast, Ryan and I do, I I sometimes do a bulleted list of reactions. I won't belabor everybody with the full uh, pomp and circumstances of Paul's Bullet Corner, but I will tell you, I summarize the album just for myself in three sort of phrases, one of which is defiant happiness. Hmm. The record is defiant and happy at the same time. Very McCartney. That's a very McCartney it is. set of emotions. Pair I'll of be emotions. damned if you're going to bring me down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> You son of a bitch. <laughs> I'm way too happy to be mad at you. Thumbs up. Yeah. Okay. Both thumbs. <laughs> um, this one is a little more flowery. Our favorite pop sensei hanging loose on a lick and a piccadilly. And the reason why I say that is he is a master at work. He's a master. He's the king of the Piccadilly. Yeah, he's, he really is like, uh, at this point, he's, he may as well be a Buddhist monk sitting up chanting on a hilltop. He knows what he's doing, is what I'm saying. But the songs do all kind of hang on hooks or little McCartney jingles. Mm-hmm. And then the last one I have on here is The Sound of Trying, because <laughs> it sounds like he's trying on this album. It, that's what it sounded like to me. I mean, the first thing I thought when I heard this record was, this is the most vital this dude has sounded since Flowers in the Dirt. Like, that's just the way I felt about it. I know Flowers isn't everybody's favorite. I know you have mixed feelings Well, hold feelings on a second. Usually saying that someone sounds like they're trying is not a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> like trying too hard, you know? Well, I mean... In the- and the word that comes to mind when I think of my favorite McCartney is, in fact, effortless, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, let me... I'll phrase it to you this way. You know, McCartney's often criticized for just singing whatever's in his head. That effortless thing rubs some people the wrong way. It rubbed Lennon the wrong right. way at times, where Lennon felt right. like when he's on, when he's trying, he can write great lyrics. But I guess what Lennon yeah. often felt was is that he didn't try all the time. He wasn't trying all the time. This album, to me, sounded like Paul was really trying. Got it. And that may have come from the fact that he knew he was going to have to bring it to family dinner, you know? And that's a great little incentive. And what a wonderful thing. Guy's 78 years old. He doesn't have to do shit. But he's found this little game to play with himself and his family, and he turned it into another record. I mean, it's just pure McCartney. So that's where I'll leave that. We don't think of it as a big deal anymore after, how long is it? 50 years of one-man band Paul McCartney. That's actually a lot of work. Yeah. And we saw in that BBC special for chaos and creation was that the one where he just had no problem at all yeah. just on stage in front of everyone starting to do some multi-tracking that was awesome it's like oh no i'll just lay down a sweet bass see what i do is i put down some drums like this yeah. and i put down a little bass line and you realize that yeah it really is that easy for him it's kind of that easy for him but he was just giving a demo the reality of putting a song together is another matter and this is a lot of work you know, at 78, to have the energy to play every freaking instrument. Yeah. But, I mean, the trying you're talking about, just the amount of multi-tracking, yeah. there's a lot of trying there. <laughs> there's a lot of work involved. Yeah. Yeah. E- even for a whiz like McCartney, there's a lot of work involved. Absolutely. I don't have bullet points. I would say jammy and intimate mm. and relaxed. Yeah. I know that some of the songs deal with anxiety and difficult issues, but even those songs are, they're relaxed in the sense that it's, hey, you know what? You'll be okay. Right. They talk about anxiety, but then they say, but you know what? You're good. I'm here, if nothing else. Yeah. 
you guys, when you did the Egypt Station episode, it may have even been that initial reaction episode you and Ryan recorded for the first two tracks that were released from Egypt Station. But I remember you saying something along the lines of that you appreciate how exposed he was emotionally on the slower of the two tracks Mm. and that he was kind of being vulnerable and... I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What a way to open a record, by the way. I don't know. Jesus. Yeah. What a wonderful song. So this one, I feel, is a bit more guarded in that sense. You know, he's back to the, you know, stiff upper lip, keep your chin up, you know, you can do it. Motivational, Paul. Mm -hmm. I think I, like you, have a real attraction to Vulnerable Paul. Hmm. Writing to Vanity Fair is one of my favorite tracks from him, and that's Vulnerable Paul. Such an amazing track, yeah. And whenever he does open up and, well, and we'll get to that more as these tracks go on when we talk about them, because I can't help but compare these songs to older tracks. I'll try not to do it too much, but it's hard not to when you've been a fan for so long. But Yeah, I've been doing it too, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's sometimes to mix success, but I don't know. I think there's some strong stuff on this. I do wish he was a bit more open emotionally in this record, but... It's a small criticism to have, really. I mean, in his defense, he is talking about difficult things. Uh, He's doing it from a a second-person perspective very often. You're having a hard time type stuff. That's a a good point. I hadn't considered that. The fact that he's doing it at all, or addressing those topics at all, is vulnerable in a sense. Yeah, that's a good point. So, should we dive into track one? Let's do it. What do we got here, Chris? We got Long-Tailed Winter Bird, and it's relationship is to the last track on the record, which turns out to be an old track. And we're going to get into some detail, I guess, on that later. Well, we will get into detail later. I'm trying to decide how much to withhold. When Winter Comes is a George Martin produced track from a ways back. And there was an animated film that Paul was writing that for. And in the course of revisiting that project, he came up with a bit of extra music, a bit of an intro for it. And we ended up with this really, I think it's kind of a great way to start the album, Long-Tailed Winter Bird. And this is, by the way, one of those songs that I probably normally shouldn't like because it's barely a song, but it's actually just sonically really beautiful and a kind of a bold, awesome way to start the album. is a very arresting way to start the album. It was the first track worked on for the album, and the title is based on his idea from a book he was reading about birds. I don't know if he gives the title of the book. 
but he had seen that there's a long-tailed duck and a long-tailed winter duck close enough, I guess, from his point of view. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really enjoying this track. It, It does very little, but the acoustic guitar playing is fantastic. I'm going to show right now, I want to show you how this guitar lick, this bing, ding, 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 he's got an open string and another string that he's bending up to the same note as the open string. Oh, wow. And we've heard that on Too Many People at the end of Too Many People. Oh, yeah. Ding, 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 oh, ding, ding. no way. That's, I'll, that's I'll put wild. them side by side so you can hear it. Yeah, here, here we go. thoughts on this one? Oh, what a wonderful way to start the record. I just, I'll, I'll just say this at the top here. My wife is not a big Paul McCartney fan. That's um, tough. She, <laughs> but no, so my wife who doesn't love every Paul record, but very patiently sits through all of them when I'm playing them. She stopped in her tracks when this came on and she went, who is this? And I said, oh, this is the new McCartney record. She was like, stop. No. And I was like, yeah. no, it really is. And then the his voice came in. It's what a way to start. And it's then, so yeah. Yeah. So she's got her Shazam out trying to capture it. And she's like, is it I, I this never happens with her. It was blowing my mind. I'm in the living room, she's in the kitchen, and she's go <laughs> she's screaming out, Is this is it called long tailed winter bird? I'm like, Yeah, no, that's what it is. In my mind, it's like Christmas morning. I'm like, Oh my god, she likes a McCartney song. It does yeah. sound remarkably contemporary, and yeah, it's a little rambly, it's a little jammy, That's but bluesy, you know. Yeah, but it's got a really playful experimentation about it. And to me, and I'm a big Press to Play fan. I know you don't love that record. Me? Well, I, I love that record. Do you? I I, I guess yes. I'm hearing you say high 80s production in my head, and I'm maybe getting a little confused. <laughs> I talked about the high 80s production. I talked about Hugh Padgham, and I said there are examples of good 80s production and the police yeah. and some of the Phil Collins stuff. And yeah, I love Press to Play. You're thinking about my reaction to We Got Married. <laughs> I like that song. Um, but it's high 80s production. So this one was giving me big, pretty little head energy. In the sense mm. that Pretty Little Head kind of rambles around a bit too. And it's a little jammy. It's a little, nah. You know, it's it's back to your, is it really a song thing? Well, I almost think of it as a naked Talking Heads type song, even though oh, yeah. it's before naked. Yeah. Like Facts of Life or something. Sure. You take the yeah. good, take the bad, take them both. No, not that. No, I know. I know. I'm teasing, I'm teasing you. I'm teasing. <laughs> but you know I'm going to play the Facts of Life theme right now. <laughs> it takes a lot to get a when you're learning the facts of life, learning the facts of life, I think the drums are absolutely killer on this track and all over the album, but especially on this one, man, he sounds so damn good behind that kit. Oh my God. 
It just sounds so awesome. I love his drumming on this whole record. Well, he's always been a good, solid drummer, but the drum sounds on this record. And there's some technical reasons for that we'll get into on some of the other tracks, but the drums sound amazing too. He's playing solid and, you know, great the way he always does, but also, man, whoever mic'd up this stuff. Yeah. Wow. He's got a lot of spunk on this song. And it's not just the drums, but it's, I don't know, there's an audacity about that riff. Yes. And just lingering on it that long. I remember watching his interview on Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy Kimmel's just like, you could be on that riff for hours and not know what time it is even when you're done with it. And I kind of agree. Like Hmm. it's one of the things that is helped by the fact that McCartney wasn't afraid to cut the songs down. Hmm. I really like that he kind of lets them ride for a minute and just sort of has fun with it. And you get that in a lot of reviews and reaction to the record, that it's playful or fun or whatever, but it does sound like he's having fun. I remember talking about Maybe I'm Amazed and how it sounds like a band, you know? Yeah. This has this live, present feel of like a band, Yeah, but it's just Paul. It's just Paul. He plays apparently a bit of recorder on this one. And oh. dur- during a Reddit Ask Me Anything, he said, I've been playing recorder very badly since the 60s, which I think is funny. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that is definitely not him on recorder on I Am Your Singer. That is definitely that recorder group. That's, that's right. so professional sounding, but yeah. But uh, evidently it is him on Fool on the Hill doing the recorder because- uh, Oh, sure. Because Jane's mother taught him, I think is the story. Jane Asher's mother. He does play pretty bad recorder on that track. <laughs> it works perfectly. It's not good recorder. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? Move on to the next track? Let's do it. Find my way. Find my way. Well, I can find my way. I know my left and right. Because we never close. I'm open day and night. Towards the light I'm open round the clock I don't get lost that night I have this quote from McCartney himself. This is from NME, December 23rd, 2020. I started this on the piano and it was based on an idea that I'd had in the car and I was listening to music and there was a beat on the radio that I liked. So I just started singing along with it but making up my own words and tune. So that was started... <laughs> That's fantastic, right? So that was started in the car. Then I wrote it when I got home on the piano and took it into the studio, and it actually had a whole other idea for the verses, which I didn't like. So I eventually put in a new idea, which is the middle now, and he sings it. You never used to be afraid of days like these. So I think that was much better than the original idea. So he kind of got started singing along with something in the car that I guess bored him enough that he liked the beat. So he made up a song to it. He had 10 songs to write really fast in the <laughs> so, car, so. So he told, this, oh my God. So he told Zane Lowe a bit more about that. He he was talking about writing in the car. And actually, when you hear some of the lyrics, I know my left from right, I don't get lost at night. They're actually all lyrics about the car ride he was on, which I think is really oh. funny and cute. And then this is the bit I love. He tells Zane Lowe, I just felt confident that I could find my way. Confidence in general. If I had to light a fire... I could light a fire. Then in the middle of the song, I started thinking about people that didn't feel that confidence. And then it was like, let me be your guide. And that gave the song a nice shape. It had my confidence and then the anxieties of the other person. It's nice to sing because it starts deep and low. And then you go right up to the middle. It's a nice thing in that song. So 
I guess it started about this drive and the lyrics are kind of about the drive, but then it morphed into like, yeah, I can drive. I'm an adult. Mm -hmm. I can do this. I'm in control of my own destiny. If I want to cook a dinner, I can cook a dinner. If I want to light a fire, I can light a fire. And then he was sort of thinking about another character for the middle bit. I mean, I guess all the, hey, Paul, all the characters are secretly you because that's just how that works. But I guess it helped him to think about it in that way, you know? Yeah. Well, that gets back to what we were saying earlier about it being a second person, like, let me be your guide. Like, it's a second person take on anxiety. I know you're going through anxieties right now. You never used to be afraid of days like these, second person, you. But let me help you out with this, which actually, I don't know, talks a little bit about that. Yes. And who cares is about that. Who cares? Who cares? I do. Yes. That's one of my notes. I, I marked that as a, oh yeah, that's in that same kind of spirit. Some interesting technical facts about the song I wanted to share. Paul had recorded two different drum tracks and two different drum parts, and then recorded a bunch of guitars onto the Brunel quarter-inch reel-to-reel tape machine. So they're recording onto tape some of the time here. Yeah. Which they mentioned tape machines a few times in the technical notes about this album. Capturing some at different tape speeds, which by the way is a Beatles technique. That's part of why the Beatles sound the way they do. They recorded different parts at different tape speeds. That's right. They, so everything was either sped up or slowed down a little bit in some weird way, often by microtonal amounts. Right. It's like one and a quarter steps <laughs> in strawberry fields, you know, yeah. because of tape speeds, right? Right. And then the guitar loops were arranged and layered onto the track. And uh, there's a little more about that from Steve Orchard, the engineer. December 2020 from Interview with Music Radar. For Find My Way, we used a quarter-inch Brunel tape machine. It's got a speaker built into it. Paul will record a lick into it, and we'll play it back at different speeds through the speaker. We've got a tape loop set up with the lid of a coffee can, so you can get a continuous loop. (laughs) It's got a sound-on-sound mode where it lifts the tape away from the record head, so you have a couple of different sounds playing at the same time. Then when you put it into playback mode, you can play it at different speeds and get different octaves. We'll record that into Pro Tools and edit them up. Wow. That gives me big Revolution 9 energy, right? They had all the different tapes on the pencils right around the office or whatever. Yeah. That's uh, Tomorrow Never Knows. And yeah. Tomorrow Never Knows as well. Yeah, that's right. That's oh, it. was it both of them? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they had the dudes just holding a pencil out in the hallway right. for, the, <laughs> for the tape loop. I never get tired of telling my students about that. I don't think they can even begin to grasp what the hell I'm talking about. Hey, right. It's like, no, the tape was so long, it went out into the hallway, and I'm amazed. That's I never, right. I get goosebumps every time I describe it, and they're like, what's tape? Well, <laughs> You mean like tape. duct tape? What are you talking about? <laughs> well, I, I would also point out, you know, you bring up Tomorrow Never Knows. That's Paul that did that. He originated Oh, that. he was the tape guy on yeah. that. He was the tape machine. Yeah, the tape right. manipulation guy. Yeah. So a lot of people are quick to credit Lennon with the more far out stuff, but he has a real avant-garde streak and he had a real mind for trying to fix things and solve problems that are unusual. And so I think that's a great example of it. I didn't realize he did that on this track, but it's it's really cool that he did it here too.
So this is just a good solid rock track. I dig it. Yeah. You really like this one, right? I like it. You know, <laughs> I was saying my wife was very intrigued by Long-Tailed Winterbird. And then when this one came on, she was like, oh, it's McCartney. Yeah, okay. I Yeah, that's, <laughs> mm-hmm. yep, that's, that's McCartney. This one for me is, and I don't know if this is something that you have on different later era Paul records. There's always one song that sounds different from the rest of the record. And it's always hmm. the one that he's sitting down trying to write a hit with. You mean like, uh, you? Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. You mean like press? Because press sounds completely different from the rest of Press to Play. That's true. <laughs> I think of songs like Ever Present Past and... Ever Present Past sounded like a hit the first time I heard it. Right. Fine Line. Yes. Is kind of sounds different from the rest of Chaos, that kind of thing. This one is that for me. It's like something about it is just seems out of place i wound up really liking the track it's a great little rock song it's hooky i think his voice sounds good on it i really like the little effects and the descending guitar licks and all the different little Mm -hmm. shit he's putting on this and the thing i love the most about the last two records is that we get these big synth horn sections (laughs) that come out of nowhere and i love that sound on paul albums you know i love the horn section. I mean, it makes me think of the Wings Over the World tour because I automatically go to... Yeah, but those are horns. Those are actual horns. I, I know, but it's just the idea of it. Yeah, the fake horns are... You don't like the fake horn. Well, interesting. <laughs> I, hate, I hate all fake horns, yeah. I'm okay with fake strings, but brass and woodwinds, man, I can just tell it's I fake. guess it just doesn't yeah. bother me because the fakeness brings me to that press-to-play place. I think 80s doesn't mean the same thing to you that it does to me. Because it sounds like 80s to me in okay. a bad way. Like, why would you still be doing those awful 80s <laughs> horns? It's 2021. Well, 2020. Yeah. And you're Paul McCartney. You get some horns in here if you wanted. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I Listen, I like the yeah, parts, though. I see, that's another one of those bits from Absolutely. Egypt Station that I really liked. I loved the the little horns going on on Egypt station. So anyway, I like that a lot about this track. It feels a little disconnected, but I dig it. You know, it's a good second track for a record. It's got this great line. I'm open round the clock. Yeah. I like that a lot. Have you seen the video? <laughs> I've not seen the video. He is doing all the instruments and then it's like, I don't know. You remember in the spies like us video, they do that too. And they yes. sort of cut back. Yes. And God, I think, you know, speaking of fine line, I think that was that video too. And of course, coming up. Coming up in a different way, way, right? Yeah, Yeah, Find My Way's all right. Not crazy about the horns like you are, (laughs) but overall, I'm I'm okay with this song. And it's real laid back. It reminds me a little bit of Young Boy. It's like a better Young Boy to me. Of course, that might be controversial too. I don't like Young Boy that much. I do like the relaxed quality of Young Boy, and this has that. That's a wonderful point. Young Boy is that track for me on Flaming Pie, the one that feels disconnected from the rest of it. There you go. The one where he's trying to write a hit. I guess that goes against my trying thesis from earlier, but... Yeah, I, I didn't sense a lot of trying in Young Boy. That was my problem <laughs> with it, but... <laughs> Look into my lens Give me all you got Work it for me, baby Let me take my best shot I Meet the pretty boys A line of bicycles for hire Objects of desire Working for the squire You can look 
What in the world is going on with this? So this is a low point for me, but it's been growing on me. I like it musically and production-wise. I think it's it's pleasant to listen to, but as soon as you start thinking about the words, you wonder. I, I know the story, and I guess we'll tell the story, that he was inspired by the bicycles. Wild. <laughs> Actually, let me read the bicycles uh, quote here. Inspired by Paul seeing bicycles for hire around New York and London. <laughs> And it was also inspired by photographers who have been known to get out of line in the studio. And he goes on to say, certain photographers, so this is a quote from Paul, certain photographers, they tend to be very good photographers, by the way, can be totally out of line in the studio. So Pretty Boys is about male models. And going around New York or London, you see the lines of bicycles for hire. It struck me that they're like models. They're there to be used. It's most unfortunate. <laughs> that's, what a nut. That's the New York Times, November 29th. Paul may be thinking of his young self as a bit of a pretty boy oh, in this sense. Yeah, I hadn't considered that. Yeah. There is another interview, I don't have the quote, where he's talking about how he, you know, he used to have to go in for these photo sessions and the photographers would be total yeah. jerks. And so he's thinking back on his Beatle days as the cute huh. Beatle, yeah. you know? Yeah. I think he is a little bit. That's interesting. You know, you know I, I love hearing about those days and the young guy dynamic in the group, especially as it relates to Pete Best, you know, because a lot of people theorize that, you know, that was one of the reasons they sacked Pete is because Paul wanted to be the cute one, right? But I mean, I think the reason Paul they- still would have been the cute one. Yeah, I guess Pete had a reputation, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. It's interesting to think about that, you know, because they're so mythologized at this point that you, I don't, it's hard for me to wrap my brain around, oh yeah, maybe Paul was jealous of Pete, but I don't, I, I mean, that's obviously not why they let him go. It's just interesting to think about, you know? One thing struck me, you know, I was at a friend's house over Christmas and he had the LP. We didn't listen to it, but I started looking at the pictures and I was looking at that one profile of Paul and I just turned to my friend and said, look at that handsome <laughs> motherfucker. I love that shot. You're talking about the one with his hair flowing and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Look into my lens, try to feel the light. The camera loves you It's gonna be alright Oh, here come the pretty boys A line of bicycles for hire Objects of desire When they're working for the squire You can look, but you better not talk. For the people listening at home Chris and I are sharing a Google Doc right now. I'm going to peel back the curtain a little bit. I'm going to part the kimono, and I'm just going to see here. I don't know if we should include part the kimono. It's super sexy for the show. Um, I see you and I have identified the same song that we thought that this sounded like. Smoke a pipe and discuss all the vast intricacies of life We could jaw through the night Talk about a range of subjects, anything you like Songs we were singing I think it's a more sophisticated version of that Or like an evolution of that song I think sophisticated is a good word Songs we were singing is a little bit dead It always struck me as a little bit half-baked and this kind of takes the same basic chord progression, the same riff, 
and makes a little bit more of a song. Do you think he was listening to that with fresh ears from the box? And that's why we got that similarity? So I have a quote from Keith Smith, who is Paul's technical manager, meaning he's in charge of the equipment Mm -hmm. in the studio and making the right calls on equipment. And he says, when he did Pretty Boys, he sat down and said, I've got this really nice little thing I've been working on. It was a riff that he's had going for ages. Ah, I recognized it from way back when he started playing it. He just sat down with an acoustic and knocked out the vocal and the acoustic at the same time. Then it just developed. But classic McCartney guitar part. And yeah, he used it in songs we were singing. You're right. He might have been reminded, actually. I don't know what this guy means by ages, right? It is very similar. That's interesting. See, I feel like I'm, I'm listening to Take It Away Now. This is so surreal. This is awesome. I just learned something cool. There's, uh, some bits I like about this more than songs we were singing, as you were saying. Songs we were singing, I feel the same way about it. And in fact, I didn't realize that the earlier version, speaking of that Flaming Pie box, sounds even more disconnected and choppy and like there isn't much of a song there. Mm. There's an early version that they include on that box. And I was just like, Oh my God. Like in listening to the final version versus that version, you're like, Oh no, this sounds much more finished by comparison, but it was, it was an interesting example. I still remember. Cause this would have been, okay. So it's the first song on flaming pie. I've already pissed everybody off by the time we got to the first song on flaming pie. And, and then we got to this song and the soda jerker guys had to reluctantly agree with me though, that it, I said, you know, you hear a verse and a chorus, you're pretty much done, right? Like that's the song. You could stop it after the first verse and first chorus. And they, they kind of reluctantly agreed with me, as I recall. Like, well, yeah, that's yeah. true. <laughs> I mean, it's Paul. It's got the hooks. I dig it. Oh, it's fine. It's a good way it's to start It's the Bloody Beatles wide album. Shut up. Uh, <laughs> Shut uh, up. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite Paul McCartney quotes, actually. Let's move on then to track four, Chris. What do you say? Let's move on to track four, Women and Wives. Hear me, women and wives. Hear me, husband and lovers, what we do with our lives seems to matter to others. Some of them may follow roads that we run down, chasing tomorrow. What do you think of this one? This is kind of another low point for me on the record. Okay. But... I think younger Paul would have given that Lady Madonna voice that he's going for on this more gusto. And I think it's really just a a vocal thing for me on this track. It's the only track on the album where the voice doesn't, well, I guess this one in Kiss of Venus, but it's one of a very few amount of tracks for me on the record where the voice isn't working for me. And this one is one of those. Again, I can hear what he's going for. He's got that Lady Madonna voice he's going for, but mm-hmm. just it's something's missing for me. It's just not working. So <laughs> two interesting responses to that. One from Paul McCartney, who said that it might be his favorite song on the album. Oh, well, there you go. All right. Well, sorry, Paul. <laughs> Someone asked him, what's your favorite song on the album? He said, possibly a little song called Women and Wives. That was from a, an interview with Chris Rock, December 17th, 2020. I guess I didn't see that interview. I would like yeah. to see Paul McCartney interviewed by Chris Rock. Yeah. But anyway, that was from that interview. And it's funny, I wrote here in my reaction notes for Women and Wives, sweet, big vocal sound. Oh. Seems to embrace old man Macca voice like I don't know. There you go. So what I heard was him going for the big baritone. Like, yeah, I'm an old man now. I can't, you know, sing it. Well, he's not admitting that he can't sing high as we'll, as we'll get back to, but... 
he's embracing that he has a big baritone now. And so I heard him really going for it on that. Yeah. It didn't work for you. It didn't. It works for me better as the song goes on. It kind of hits me like a sack of bricks at the top of the track. By the time I get into verse two and my ears have adjusted, I can get into it a bit more. I don't hate the song. Like I, There's no track on this album that I hate. Like I really do love certain lines, particularly about this track, that hear me mothers and men, but I kind of want to hear, mm-hmm. I don't know, I want to hear his, either his younger self singing it or somebody else singing it. It's got a teach your children well kind of sentiment going on there, but sure. this comes back to the defiance I talked about at the top. There's a line where he says, what we do with our lives seems to matter to others. And that's cool. That's a vicious little- I love that line. Yeah. It's got shades of like angry from London Town or even however absurd, you know? Well, they're- Custom made okay. dinosaurs, too late now for change. Yes. Wow. Yeah. But I'm also thinking, you're hearing an anger there. The way I took that line was, you're just doing your thing, and then you realize you're affecting other people. Seems to matter to others. Like, you're kind of becoming aware, wait, it actually matters what I do. I love the seems. What you do seems, he doesn't say what you do matters to others or affect, it seems to matter to others as if you're maybe just coming to this realization. So I took seems as sarcastic. I took seems as like a... Well, I guess it seems to matter to others. You know, like that's how I took it. I kind of like your interpretation better because it's sweeter. (laughs) Um, But no, I I can see that. Yeah, I can see that. I don't know which of us is is right about what he meant. Well, you know, it's like you hear like silly love songs, for example. Whenever anybody asks them about like, boy, this is kind of an angry little tune. Because it is. It, It. when you get right down to silly love songs, he's basically refuting his critics. And furthermore, the melody with the stabbing sink, it's really like- Right. But when you hear him talk about it, he's like, nah, I just like love songs. And then I'm never sure if that's PR, Paul, or if that's really sincerely just, well, no, I'm, either he doesn't know what he's saying or he really meant something different. I don't know. It's why I like it more when he's a bit more upfront with his feelings. And I wish he'd stop hiding them so much. Mm. I'm glad we agree on that great line. On the topic of the vocals, I did get from Spotify Storyline. I grabbed a few things from Spotify Storyline. I hope they're accurate. But it says that the song was written after reading a biography of legendary blues singer Lead Belly, Hmm. the great singer. And during the writing, Paul decided to sing in a more bluesy baritone, echoing Lead Belly's style of delivery.
think it's a pretty cool song. You don't love it that much. I'm charmed by the vocal. You're not crazy about it. Let's move on to Lavatory Lil. Oh. I'm pronouncing it his style, Lavatory. Lavatory. It's British. Yeah. We would say lavatory, or better yet, bathroom. This is one of (laughs) (laughs) the toilet paper out. This is one I eat with a spoon. Give me Lavatory Lil all day. I need this. I need Lavatory Lil. I love it. Really? (laughs) Oh, God. I love it so much. Oh, my God. It's an angry little song. Now, this is the one where I wrote down, reminds me a little bit of Angry from Press to Play. Oh, so my, I'm reading Mr. Bellamy on this, and I'm reading Uncle okay. Albert on this. Oh, interesting. I mean, he's mad at someone on this track. There is a person who is Lavatory Lil, and he's pissed. Says she's hunky-dory when she's making you your dinner, but she's really making you ill. Lavatory <laughs> yeah. Lil, it's just so fun. She's acting like a starlet, but she's looking like a harlot, which is an Elvis Costello rhyme, if ever there was. First of all, it's an amazing rhyme, starlet, harlot, thank wow. you, Paul. But yeah. also the vaguely misogynistic, like, <laughs> fuck you, lady, vibe there. <laughs> I did not get a Costello thing, but now that you mention it, Oh my God! Yeah, there's some yeah, Costello right. on here. Rolling in the hay bit that cracks me up too. I I mean, to that. me, this one's kind of standard rock, but I do dig the anger. I put it down. Standard rock, dig the anger. Uh, yeah. Look out for love, tree Look out for love, tree You think that she's a winner when she's cooking you your dinner, but she really moving in for the kill. Love tree And this is someone he had a genuine problem with. Another McCartney quote. She was someone we rubbed up against. You get in a few of them in life. These people who screw you over. I thought, I'll have you. I'll write a song. You'll never know it's about you. I won't tell anyone, but I'll know. And people who know who I'm talking about will know. So so I drew on my dislike of this individual and made her song into a character. Wow. Pretty amazing. So he's really mad at somebody. God, who is it? The vocal was the first take. It's like I say, if you think you're doing a posh, important album, (laughs) you might go over the vocal and and think you can improve it. But this was It'll Do. And he's using his Telecaster on this, his 1954 Telecaster. Nice. Uh, And he's playing it through a Vox AC30 amp to get this really good blues rock sound. I called out the guitar playing on this in my notes here. It just, he's a really good lead guitarist and he doesn't do it enough in his solo career. Like on Egypt Station, I think I recall you not being crazy about that last track where he just sort of plays lead guitar for a while, just because I don't remember if you called it. You felt it was feeling a bit aimless. Oh, yeah. the thing at the very end. On, well, I just thought it was a weak way to end the album. I didn't think it was a bad track. I just, I eat that stuff up. I just love, I could have heard him. Yeah, C-Link, you're right. It's called C-Link. Do you like blues? Are you like a blues guy? I like blues. Yeah, I mean, 
it's not like a go-to for me, but sound and the emoting and something like a sweet guitar solo. I guess I like Englishman blues, like um, okay, Led Zeppelin, and me too. Yeah, love Led Zeppelin. Pre Led Zeppelin, Yardbirds, right? I mean, yeah, 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 Yardbirds for sure. Yeah, it's partly why I like Jack White so much because I feel like there's a school of like that kind of rock and roll blues that I just really am attracted to. I'm not really going out of my way to listen to Robert Johnson, but I love Robert Johnson, you know, that kind of thing, you know? I mean, I do listen to Lead Belly. He's actually a favorite of mine. Yeah. Um, Blind Willie McTell. Oh, Howlin' Wolf. A I'm a big Howlin' Wolf fan. Howlin' Wolf is excellent. Who doesn't yeah, love Howlin' Wolf? Come on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is good stuff. I mean, I don't mean to knock it like that. It's just not like a go-to for me and I'm not going. For but it. I'm saying I'm not a blues guy. I mean, I, I mentioned these people I like, but I, I tend to get bored because I know what's coming, you know what I mean? Like structurally in the song, well, it's going to be these three chords, you know? Right. And so I get a little bored, but the reason that people who love the blues don't get bored is that they're listening to timbre and like... The pain of the lyric. Yeah, and lyric and like the, the grain of the singer's voice and yeah. Well, yeah, the, Rob, the great Robert Johnson used to play to the corner of the room in the recording studio so that he could pick up his voice bouncing off both sides of the walls when he's recording it. And so you get this haunting, just ethereal sound from the vocal. The stuff those guys were doing back then is wild to think about, you know, before. That's what it sounds like when you sell your soul to the devil. Right. At the crossroads. (laughs) Yeah. Down at the crossroads. Yeah, that's right. It's so funny to me though, talking about Lavatory Lil, I would have never thought we'd been talking about this being a, basically a diss song and the fact that it's all about anger. When I was listening to this, I was thinking about Mr. Bellamy up in the tree and how was Uncle Albert going to bake him a butter pie or whatever. Like, that's what I'm thinking. Now, if you're listening to this album on vinyl, you've gotten to the end of side A. We're flipping it over here to side B, Deep, Deep Feeling. Uh, Every time it rains, it sometimes gets too much. You know I feel the pain when I feel your loving touch. Emotion burns in the ocean of love. You got that hot emotion burns in the ocean of love. The deep, deep pain of feeling. The deep, deep pain of feeling. The deep, deep pain. The deep, deep pain of feeling. The deep, deep pain. So intense the joy of giving. How does it feel? So immense the thrill of living. How does it feel? So My understanding is that Deep Deep Feeling created some problems with flipping it over. The fact that it's eight minutes long and right in the middle of the album made it kind of hard for the track list to work on vinyl. So there are differences between CD and LP versions. Yes, I have noticed that. In doing the research and doing the <laughs> track listing, I was like, why are these out of order here? So that's an interesting, I don't know if that's ever happened on a McCartney record before where they had to mess with the sequencing. Maybe you know the answer to this. If I'm listening to the standard issue CD, is that the originally conceived track order? I'm looking at the back of the CD now, and it goes from Lavatory Lil to Deep Deep Feeling. So Yes, that's what I'm looking at too. I'm saying the CD seems to be, in a sense, that's authentic because that's the order he chose. But the LPs have had to be rearranged to squeeze the songs onto the sides because you've got an eight-minute song in the middle. That's a very good point. Yeah, I guess the CD's the standard. You guys had run into that on a couple other albums, too, as I recall, like 
which is the canonical version. Especially pressed to play. Especially pressed to play. Are those three last tracks, 11 through 13, are they the album? Or are they just extra tracks? Because to me, they're kind of both. It bothers me to no end. It's an encore. When I'm listening to Press to Play on vinyl, and there's not Tough on a Tightrope. I'm like... Oh, no, that's not proper. That's not proper at all. Yeah. That's yeah. part of that album. That's one of my favorite tracks on that oh, album. It's one of the best tracks on the album. Yeah. yeah. So we talked earlier in the episode, there's two deep songs. One is my favorite song on the album, and one is maybe one of my least favorite songs on the album. This one's my favorite song on the album. This is your favorite song on the album. I love this. I love how long and weird it is. I just got a sense of vitality from this one. From It just sounded like, I don't know, something about it rang true for me. And it felt real. You know, the emotion felt real. I just really love this track. I like this better than Deep Down. This one, it has these interesting changes of feel. So when you get into kind of in the middle of the song where it starts to veer off, right? It keeps the tempo more or less the same. He keeps tweaking with the feel. Yeah. And that's actually really interesting to me. Also, pretty good high singing on this song. Yes. The double tracking helps. Good idea to double track if you're not confident in your high voice. And if you notice when he's double tracking, he sounds great, but exposed you know, it can sound a little rough. But on this song, he sounds pretty good in his high register throughout. And he's doing, again, in places, that Lady Madonna voice. And it, to me, is successful in a way Pretty Boys isn't. Right. I think he actually nails it here and gets it. Yeah, Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I love the call and response vocals that he's doing with Mm -hmm. himself. And, oh God, there's one point where there's like an echo it's like down 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 and i'm just like oh yeah that's the stuff you know i love that stuff it's just i think his voice sounds excellent on this song yeah i definitely like his voice on the song yeah the deep deep pain of feeling the deep deep pain of feeling the deep deep pain of feeling the deep deep pain you know that deep deep feeling so much you feel your heart's gonna burst the feeling goes from best to worst you feel your heart is gonna burst sometimes I sometimes I wish it would stay sometimes I wish it would go away that's not something I say about a lot of later period tracks of his i'm not really listening to the voice and going oh that's a great vocal yeah i guess i get that a bit on queenie eye like i think that's a really great vocal i get that a bit on cut me some slack i think that's a great vocal but Hmm. i don't really get that feeling that deep deep feeling about a lot of his later (laughs) career vocals this Uh is one where i'm like it's got to be this vocal i don't want to hear young paul do this one this is the one i want to hear from old from older paul i mean it's a nice experiment this song Maybe there's a little bit of rinse the raindrops going on here, actually. With the extended length and the tweaking the feel and having it kind of veer off somewhere in the middle. Did we do this again? Did we both pick the same thing again? I think I mentioned rinse the raindrops in my notes for this. Because I'm a well, huge rinse the raindrops guy. I love we that We know song. our Mac. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it made me think of that, you know. So it is among my least favorites on oh, the album. It's wow. it's it's there with Deep Down, which uh, I also don't care for, as I've, I've already spoiled it. So yeah. yeah. I, I like this one a lot more than Deep 
down. Again, you know, least favorite doesn't mean don't like. Yeah. Right? Just to be clear, like people don't understand sometimes when I'm talking about Paul McCartney <laughs> that I like all the all of this, you know. <laughs> I mean, this is one of the more jammy songs. Yeah. So we're jamming, it's very relaxed, it's mm-hmm. fooling around, experimental. It's all right, you know, it's kind of fun to let it unfold. That beautiful drum pattern is part of that unfolding, and it's just, God, it's really well put together. For a jammy kind of long song, I don't know, to me it seems like shockingly intentional. I uh, found a bit of background on this track. I guess this one had been on the back burner for about a year before lockdown and um paul said of it if i'm lucky i'll have a bit of time when i'll go into the studio and just make something up and so i try to just do something that i haven't done before this was one of those that i didn't finish to me what it was about was sometimes i don't know how it happens even what it is but when you're feeling real love towards someone sometimes it can manifest into a tingling over your whole body and it's a pretty funny feeling and you almost don't like it you're like what the hell is this like you're about to beam up to a spaceship or something. <laughs> On this song, I was fascinated by that idea, that deep, deep feeling when you love someone so much, it almost hurts. And then he followed up with Zane Lowe questioning what that feeling is. He's like, is it a rush of blood? Is it energy? Something. Hmm. And he was just trying to capture it, I guess. And this is one of those where I'm feeling like he's exposing himself emotionally and it resonates with me. It really does. I I like that he's not hiding it. I like that he's not masking it. I like that he's just bearing it all and being honest. The Plastic Ono approach or whatever, you know, like that's what that's what this song represents to me. And I love the music. I just love it. Wow. I have some technical details on this one. Paul used his Brunel quarter inch reel to reel. So once again, the same machine we referred to earlier to layer guitar parts and create what he referred to as the guitar orchestra. This often resulted in there being 40 guitar tracks. Paul did consider editing the track's length, but as the sessions came about by accident, he decided to leave it uncut and let the album be about him having fun. Excellent. That's from Spotify Storyline, and I have one from Steve Orchard from that same uh, Music Radar interview, December 18th, 2020. With some of the songs that were more constructed, like Deep, Deep Feeling, we'll use Pro Tools like a canvas almost. Throwing ideas at it, moving things around, changing tempos, keys, and seeing what gets together. With Deep, Deep Feeling, there were some parts where we did something like 12 or 18 tracks of harmonies. (laughs) I can't remember without looking at the session, but it was a lot. Then we mixed those down to the stereo track that we could fly in at different points. Well, people who've worked with Pro Tools know what he's talking about there, but you've edited. You're an editor for podcasts. He's talking about having really 18 tracks, and that's just a background vocal that's going to be crunched down to stereo and flown into the main track (laughs) where there are also, you know, 32 tracks, right? Now, that is kind of the equivalent in the old days of what they would do. I forget what the terminology is, right? Bouncing tracks. Is that what that was? Yeah. Bouncing tracks. So you've got four tracks. You fill Mm -hmm. up three. If you want more, you're going to have to put those on four, and now you got three tracks again. That's right. So he talks about that in that Creating Chaos at Abbey Road that you referenced earlier. And he was saying that the only problem with that is that you can't then unseparate them. And so you kind of have to make a commitment and that the audio fidelity isn't as perfect as it would be on an independent 
track? That's true. Although that's true, like on your cassette four track, but they right. had multiple machines and they kept all the backups. So the amazing thing about the Beatles, this is a bit of a tangent, but if you read the Beatles recording sessions by Mark Lewison, he goes into how they would go into the session for mixing and they would back up 10 steps. It would be like, we're going to wow. have to remix this. So you're going to have to get out the tapes from three weeks ago <laughs> where we hadn't mixed the voices yet. And we're going to have to do all this again so oh, we can God. change the guitar part. No way. Yeah. Wow. Unbelievable <laughs> amount of work. So, yeah, I mean, this is no big deal. You've just got a separate Pro Tools session that has your... I do this too, because if you do double track stacked harmonies... That builds up fast. Before you know it, you're at 20 tracks of vocals. It becomes unwieldy to just stick all that into your main track with the eight tracks of drums and the four bass tracks and the 10 guitars. So at some point, you mix it to stereo and it just becomes a little stereo track. And if you need to change it, you go back to that earlier session. Right. Well, no big deal for me to go back to an earlier session and remix, but for them to get out all the tapes and have to remix all of that by hand... Yeah. But that's how committed the Beatles were to perfection. They yeah. would go ahead and back up 10 steps. Well, they also had a team of 20 they guys in white lab coats. But there's still <laughs> something about the willingness to say, no, it's not right, and we're going to have to go way back. Oh, yeah. Their quality control is one of the reasons, I think, that they are the Beatles, right? The the idea that yes. it's got to be great. And that's when people start picking on the White Album. I guess it's because they felt that the quality control wasn't always there. I don't particularly subscribe to that, but that's the complaint, I guess. Are you reacting to the massive like wall of sound aspect of this track, do you think? I mean, is that part of the charm for you, or is it maybe, something else? Maybe. I, I think it's the emotion of the sentiment mm. that is hitting me the hardest. Yeah. And the experimentation in the musicality of it just that drum pattern and that vocal and that howling guitar and god i don't know there's just something that hits this one in all the right ways for me and i really don't get this kind of track from paul all the time whenever i do get a song like this i get excited about it and i like that he lingered here you know if wildlife was a little less half-baked it would be a song like this i think mm. Where Interesting. there's more of a purpose to it. I still get something out of wildlife. Maybe what I'm getting out of wildlife is what you're getting out of this. I think we bashed it on the episode, but the truth is, I think I also kind of defended it a little bit. It's like, <laughs> you know what? This is weird. It is <laughs> you know? weird. Yeah. You know? I mean, Mumbo is one of my favorite songs. I just oh, don't- I I've, love Mumbo. I struggle to listen to that album all the way through as like for pleasure. Like I do it for my really? usual like Cat of Nine Tails, McCartney lashing in my private time, but- um that one seems a little meandery to me in bad ways, whereas this one seems meandery in a way that it's trying to build atmosphere. And it's that's really what I appreciate about it. It's it's evoking the deep, deep feeling he's talking about with this sweeping music. And it, I just think his skill is on display here, just every bit of his skill. I wanted to talk uh, just a real quick moment about the Pro Tools thing, because there's some artists I follow that for a long time resisted Pro Tools because of what you're talking about, because of that unlimited aspect of it. There was a feeling that you need limitation in order to get great art because it forces you to, to do it. And unlimited resources kind of gives you a paralysis of choice or could give you a paralysis of choice. Depends on the person. It depends on the person, sure. In this case, these guys are exploring. Sure. 
I think it focuses your vision. Mm-hmm. I think it's sort of like, no, you can do anything. So you need to decide in advance what you want to do. Interesting. This is different for Paul, though. He's building on his tape days. So probably from his point of view, it's, it, it is kind of like, isn't it cool that we can like record all these vocals, but yeah. we don't have to worry about signal degradation <laughs> from making 10 copies and all. Like we can just do it. Yeah. So he knows what he wants to do and he can do it. It depends on the artist. Some people might feel overwhelmed, but I've never felt a desire to go back to punching in on tape. And <laughs> if I screw up, I just erase the half the note of the last take. I mean... Well, it's funny you say that the same artist I'm thinking of used the sounds of a bad punch in to craft a no, track. Oh, come on. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's, a, that's amazing. You, you've just enlightened me. Yeah. yeah. They were trying to replicate the sound of a bad punch-in. and I just remember working, maybe it depends on where you're coming from, too. I mean, I worked in the studio in the 80s on tape, and it was real hard to get the punch-ins, man, (laughs) you know? And like to me, when I finally had Pro Tools, it was like, that's a problem I just don't have anymore. Right, yeah, yeah. You know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was an aside. Anyway, (laughs) that was fun, though. Yeah. One more thing about Deep Deep Feeling, it has a little bit of an electric arguments feeling to me. Oh, yeah. And yeah. that aspect of it, I really like. The, you know what? I'm just going to experiment a bit and have some fun. I think when you and I spoke before we were even going to do this, I think you had said that you had not yet listened to this album. And I and I told you that it's got shades of electric arguments on it because mm. it does. It has that experimentation, that stuff. Paul actually calls out the stuff he does with youth when... He's talking in that Zane Lowe interview for Apple Music, which is cool because they were on the topic of what makes McCartney record, you know, in the trilogy, a McCartney record in the trilogy. Like, what is it about it? And he called out the youth stuff. He's like, yeah, I guess this, the closest thing I was doing to making a McCartney three for years was basically doing the stuff with youth, right? But the difference there being you're not forced to do it because you suddenly have all this time on your hands. They, I think they keyed in on the suddenly had all this time on his hands as the thing that defined what a McCartney record in that trilogy is. track sliding oh hi abe laboreal jr how are you (laughs) so hey greg kirsten how are you hey rusty anderson how's it going always happy to welcome all these gentlemen into the room frankly yeah right Um, yeah so all of a sudden we have a how could there be more leftover tracks from egypt station except that it's paul mccartney yeah he's Brushed them all off and put them out for record store day already, Chris. <laughs> I mean, really, Egypt Station was, that's got to rank up there with Off the Ground for being kind of, he made two albums, you know? Yeah, this is a remnant of that. And actually, as a bonus track, there is a version that you can listen to of Sliden in its original Egypt Station form, Paul, Rusty, and Abe, which I thought was cool. 
This is a highlight for me on the record. I love this song. This is another one that kind of gave me that cut me some slack, like just, oh God, those heavy hammering guitars. Like, yeah, you know, I just love it that, you know, going back to Rinse the Raindrops, Too Many People, coming from the same place for me, those kinds of songs. And I just, I love the Paul guitar tracks. I love it. The heavy guitar, Paul. I love that heavy guitar, Paul. It's got... Like, what old Paul song did you think of when you heard this? It's given me too many people. I was thinking of Letting Go when I heard this. Oh, yeah, Letting Go. Yeah. I'm thinking of the slow minor blues, you know? Yeah. Smoky minor blues, which is what Letting Go is. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess for all the reasons I love Paul, smoky minor blues doesn't tend to be a thing that comes to mind initially. (laughs) And so I always forget that he's not just capable of existing in this space, but he can master it. Like, I really do think this is a masterful exercise in a harder rock guitar song. It gave me also big back to the egg energy, you know, that Mm. a bit more grizzled, (laughs) a bit more (laughs) cutthroat. Yeah, you brought up Back to the Egg. Careful. (laughs) I love Back to the Egg. Yeah, well, me too. It's going to come up again too. But Uh Well, yeah, this is not a favorite. This continues the slump of Deep, Deep Feeling for me in that I'm stuck in minor blues territory here. Okay. And uh, there aren't going to be a lot of of chord changes. There's not going to be a sweet McCartney melody to sweep me off my feet. But the singing on this one... Oh man, I'm really digging the singing on this one. Oh, it's good. And oh, it's good. Talk about old man Macca at his best. This is what he can do, man. Oh god, <laughs> he's shredding, you know, and he's he's old man shredding. It's really cool. When he's screaming, I can see my body through windows the in my windows hair. in my hair. I'm I like, wrote down that line. Damn, Paul, leave some lyrics for the rest of us. Jesus Christ. And then he gets those little. There's like laser blasts pew pew solos at the end there just (laughs) oh god that lead guitar is back i just fucking this is gravy just pour this over some mashed potatoes and shove it in my face i need okay What's wacky to me about this track is that it's a Greg Kirsten produced track. Yeah. I know his album he did for the shins and like, I know he can rock, but I always think of him as bird in the bee. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so I've got bird in the bee in my mind and here comes this ramshackle production. I mean, it sounds like, yeah. like it's just falling apart. And if you played this for me, I would not say, Oh, Greg Kirsten, obviously this yeah. sounds pretty ragged and and rough yeah but once i found out it was from egypt station then i started listening to it with egypt station ears and going oh okay yeah i guess i could see it i hear the compression style of greg kirsten and yeah he brings a cleanliness to the dirtiness Mm. actually specifically the fact that the production is kind of wild is one of the charms of the song oh yeah this is a good one i love this song (laughs) (laughs) okay well i like the next track kiss of venus it's so funny. 
This is another low point for me. <laughs> this for me is uh, this is a little guitar ditty. And I'm always good with Paul doing these little guitar ditties. It's got a weird little chromaticism in the melody at the beginning. Yeah. It's probably one of my two favorites on the album, along with the obvious one that we're coming to. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Good. I'm glad we agree on that one. <laughs> there, well, there actually, there are two we're coming to that I like. But yeah. the harpsichord, first of all, is beautifully recorded. It really is. Like, whoever mic'd this, congratulations on the miking. I know you're not listening, <laughs> but congrats on the miking on this. It sounds humongous. So I love the harpsichord. My problem with this one really is the vocal, which is pretty bad. Might be the worst vocal on the album. That's the turnoff for me on this. Well, I hear you. It's probably the worst vocal on the album. And again, the double tracking helps. Notice that the lines that are double tracked are quite tolerable. But when it's just exposed, Paul, he's not even really hitting the notes. And I guess God bless him for not using pitch correction, but... Pitch correction these days is very sophisticated. You can, if you take the time, go in and just, you can grab a note and push it, dude, 20 cents. And that 20 cents can make the difference between it locking or not. Ah, I feel weird suggesting anybody pitch correct Paul, but I mean, he's out of tune. The intonation's bad here. And his agility's gone. So it's he's struggling with the vocal. And if you're reacting to that, I have to sympathize with thinking it's a low point. Because vocally, it, it is the low point. That is the thing that's a, become a barrier for me on this song. The acoustic tune stuff, like that's some of my favorite McCartney. And, you know, we'll get to another one of those later in the record. But I like the tune. It's really fun. There's a, some really great lines in here, too. The, right? This golden circle has a most harmonic sound. He's talking about the acoustic guitar, right? Circle in the... the also probably the circle of fifths, oh, which is a okay. music theory thing. Hmm. Yeah, but he's also talking about planets in the music of the spheres. <laughs> There's this great line, we circle through the square. And he's obviously talking about going to the town square and walking round and round through the town square. Yeah. So we're a couple and we're walking round and round through the, we circle through the square. It's That's very cool. beautiful. That is cool. That is gorgeous. I've got a quote from him with this planets thing. This is another Spotify storyline. The Kiss of Venus was inspired by a book about the movements of the planets. The book discussed the pentagram of Venus and used the poetic term, the kiss of Venus. Along with Paul's singing and guitar, the only other instrument to appear on the track is a harpsichord, blah, blah, blah. So here's a quote from Paul himself about that. I fight with myself sometimes. I did it recently. I had an afternoon. It was a lovely summer's day last year and the window was open and I was in the bedroom in London and I sat down and thought, oh yeah, I'll have a noodle. (laughs) So I was noodling on the guitar and I thought, oh, that's quite good. And I thought, I'll either just bang it down on my iPhone or I'll finish it. And I wrestled with myself and said, finish it. What else are you going to do? Stick it down and then go watch telly or something finish it. Take an hour. So I did. And I was very proud of myself. I had a cool little book. Jules Holland's wife had given me. Don't know who that is. Sorry. He's a a late night host in uh, Britain that Paul has appeared on the show of many times. Thank God you know that. Kind of an astrology book all about the planets and the movements and the fantastic synchronicity of it all. A fascinating book, actually. When the planets go through all the little things, if you look at a graph, as it were, All of them, it makes like a lotus. It's trippy. (laughs) There was was some great little phrases. The Kiss of Venus was one of them. So I was loving that book, and I was making up a song about that. 
but that was an instance of forcing myself to write. And I felt good after it. I thought, yeah, that's a pretty good little song. I haven't had time to record it, but I will. The kiss of Venus has got me on the go. She's got a bullseye in the interesting stuff that's actually makes me appreciate the song a bit more knowing the background of it by the way speaking of that little phone recording he did this is the song that on the soda jerker Mm. interview he played them from the phone there you go kisses of venus is what it says (laughs) yeah that's cool you remarked on the harpsichord Mm -hmm. i don't know if i love the fact that a lot of later era McCartney albums have harpsichord all over them just because it sounds to me like he just got it as a gift or something. I mean, that's a 60s thing, harpsichord. <laughs> I know. I, I mean, know, Burt Bacharach used harpsichord. It was like uh, a 60s instrument. It just seems like it's such a hallmark of later era McCartney. Is it 260s? I don't know. It doesn't give me that the pastiche or whatever, anything like that. It just, I don't know. I feel like... We don't need it on everything. We get it on like everything. I'm not like a I'm not like a, an anti harpsichord activist. I'm just when I hear a harpsichord, I'm thinking of every track on Memory Almost Full and like the zillions of tracks on New and it just seems to crop up a lot and I'm just like, "Hey Paul, like it's okay. You don't have to." I love the harpsichord and that's an instrument I'd love to hear more often in pop music. Well, actually. there you go. There you I go. wish it had been adopted from the 60s as an actual pop music instrument. So I'm glad he's using it, but... Fair enough. Yeah. Speaking of the 60s, track nine. Seize the day. I don't care to be bad. I prefer to think twice. All I know is it's quite a show, but it's still all right to be nice. Yankee toes and Eskimos can turn to frozen ice when the cold days come. It did not occur to me that 
this was a Beatles song until I heard Paul talking about it. And now that I'm listening to it with that ear, I'm thinking, okay, all right, that's yeah, I get the I get the Beatles, uh, the descending bass line. You know, I, to me, it's not very Beatlesy at all. The only thing Beatlesy about it is the middle section. Yeah, he thinks it's Beatlesy, and to me, the middle that sounds Beatlesy to me. Here, I'll, yeah. I'll play the Beatlesy part right here. So that sounds Beatlesy to me, but the rest of it sounds like late era Paul. Sure. Just straight up late Paul. So I think this is a better version of Do It Now. That's what it is. Yeah. I wrote the same thing. You see it in my notes? No, I didn't. Is it in there? Look in my notes. Oh, you you're ca- oh, Do It Now vibe. See, we did it again. Look at that. Yeah. Amazing. We know the repertoire. <laughs> <laughs> but I like this better than Do It Now. Yeah, this is a good song, and this is a highlight of the album for me. This is uh, the same. other one, along with The Kiss of Venus, that I actually quite like, that I'm probably going to be listening to a bit. Do It Now is a little preachy. Mm-hmm. I'm having a hard time explaining why it's better. Do It Now feels like I'm being preached at, and Seize the Day feels as if I'm being sympathized with. Sure. The wind is blowing, got directions to where I'm going, nothing certain. That's the only thing I know Do it now Do it now While the vision is clear Do it now While the feeling is here I mean, it's that Jim McCartney sentiment, that thing he got from his dad, the... Stoic, bit stoic. Right, but... Optimistic and stoic. What I love most about it is, again, going back to that honesty in the lyric. He, to me, he's kind of exposed here. In Do It Now, it's almost like a little high horsey, like you were saying, preachy. That's what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah. But this one is like, he's wrestling with the fact that you have to do this. And it also has that a bit of a combative thing in there. I pulled out the line, it's quite a show, but it's still okay to be nice. Mm. Lennon used to criticize him a lot for being kind of straight, right? And straight in the sense of like not avant-garde or not, you know, getting ready to get into a street brawl all the time or whatever. The narrative from Lennon is that he's a squeaky clean conservative. So I love in this song that he says, he goes out of his way, it's still all right to be nice. Yeah, all this bad stuff can happen to you, but it's still all right. You don't have to be a jerk to everybody. And I love that. I love that about Paul's attitude. And I love that he's putting it on record and just saying it directly, you know? And then he starts talking about Yankee toes and Eskimos and he's tripping off again. But there is a a straightforwardness, which I really appreciate about that. It always bothers me in those interviews when they're feuding and Lennon's going off to the, 
the radical papers. Oh, he's a conservative. And yeah, maybe he is a bit more. Paul was not a conservative. Uh, amongst the Beatles, I would say he's probably the most conservative. Okay. In the, yeah. In the, not in the sense Amongst of, the Beatles. At art political. school. He was the most conservative kid at art school. <laughs> <laughs> but, not among, but I don't mean that in a political sense. Or like in a- No, I know a, what you mean. American, I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. He's careful. He's the guy that read through those contracts. He's the guy that kind of didn't have the relationship with Brian Epstein that Lennon did because Paul was being mindful and he didn't throw everything into his feelings. And that's almost goes against what I was just saying about how I would like him to be more direct, but I appreciate Paul's outlook. I, I admire it. Actually. I admire his outlook. It's one of the reasons why he's of the Beatles. He's my favorite Beatle, not just because I like his music more, but I, I appreciate his perspective. And in this song to me, he's putting that perspective in a very clear term and I'm, I'm into it. I'm, I'm here for it. Gonna get deep down Wanna do it right Wanna get deep down Look around It's end of time tonight Gonna get you up Gonna take a bite Gonna let me know We can go party every night So that brings us to the next track, Deep Down. Oh, this horny old man wants to sing to me a song. Fake horny old man, as it turns out. (laughs) What do you mean? Please explain. Fake horns. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You're digging the fake horns. First of all, I'm very, very happy and proud of you, Chris. Second of all, <laughs> I that's do your like, kind of pun. <laughs> I do like the. You see, I when I make a pun, I typically announce that I've made it directly afterwards. You know, I say, and oh, that's I a see. pun because. <laughs> so yeah, it I can it can be funny to explain jokes. It can, it can. Um, all right, deep down, the fake horns are back. I don't mind them, although I don't care for this track all that much. This one oh. is a little meandery to me in a bad way, whereas deep deep feeling is meandering to me in like a really fun experimental cool way if that makes any sense deep deep feeling really goes for it right with the extended track experimental thing gives us a lot of variety whereas this feels more like just a jam to me there's nothing wrong with a jam there's really fun moments it's just not enough for me to be like yeah deep down Mm -hmm. there's a bit where he there's like an echo on his voice at one point where he's like, down, down, down. and I'm like, oh, that's really cool. Like, I, that's taking me back yeah. to 80s Mac. I love that. You know, there's elements of this I actually truly do love. And there's little snippets of the lyrics too. Gonna get you up, gonna take a bite. Damn, Paul. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. The words are, you know, deep down. These are deep <laughs> down words. So. <laughs> Yeah, Deep Down is, uh, you know, a real ode to sexuality. Hey, I have a quote from Paul on this one, but I'm just going to read the first sentence. This was just a jam I had. Boom. (laughs) There There it is. is. 
I have a quote, though, from Steve Orchard, the recording engineer, who says, There's Moog bass on Deep Down, and also on Find My Way, the bass switches between Hoffner and Moog, sort of intersecting in different sections of the song. We use the Moog a fair bit, and I have to say on this song, Deep Down, the bass is deep. I mean, yeah. there is some wall-rattling bass on this track. I assume coming from the mode. Get deep down. 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 a lot of depth in this i think the organ groove on top of that is you know a nice groove i mean that's the thing even on the songs that i'm less impressed by the melody is is always there and i just i do love that depth on this track and on the whole record really i mean it's a modern sounding song you know it's not like tinny or flat like a lot of 70s recordings tend to be that brings us to the last track on the album which is quite the treat winter bird slash when the winter comes and it's really when the winter comes that we care about here, I think, yeah. the most, since Winter Bird is a, a tag, in this case, taken from track one. This is so exciting for me. It keeps bringing back that feeling of, where does it end with this guy? Because, <laughs> because you know, I texted you a photograph of yes. my 2003 Chris Brewer Paul McCartney sessionography where I have highlighted, you know, there it is, Calico Skies, great day. And I have highlighted when when winter comes. Yeah. And here we are all these years, and here it is. It's a track exists, and it's a wonderful little song and a great little 1992 Paul McCartney recording. Yeah. So when I was looking at the liner notes on Discogs, I saw, oh, that's odd. George Martin is listed on here. I wonder why that is. (laughs) That seems a little (laughs) strange. He's dead. Paul refers to it as a flaming pie remnant because that's how he thinks of it because Calico Skies and Great Day were on Flaming Pie. So in my head, I'm thinking 97, you know, because I have in my head that video from In the World Tonight where they're doing the orchestration for Beautiful Night and, you know, George Martin's got the sheet music around him like a little dress, gown, whatever, and it's Uh super cute. It's a really nice, cool video for anyone who hasn't seen that. But yeah, but you reminded me 1992 is when he put down those tracks and yeah when you hear it on this album the voice difference it just smacks you right in the face because that's the paul voice i remember from my childhood you know most people Mm. they think of beetle paul when they think of his voice but for me when i think of paul's voice i think of late 80s early 90s paul's voice because that's the paul i had when i was growing up and that's the one that kind of hooked me albums like off the ground flowers in the dirt things like that so when i heard this it just my inner nostalgia was ringing you know it's going oh my god yeah there it is no i i felt a sense of shock because i didn't recognize this title of the song at first and was just listening i wasn't reading the liner notes right then or anything so yeah all of a sudden this comes on i'm thinking well this couldn't have been recorded anytime recently what is this (laughs) then i recognize the title i'm thinking oh 97 just like you i'm thinking oh must be 97 but actually this doesn't sound like Flaming Pie Voice. Yeah. Ryan and I, with Old Man Maca Voice, had pinpointed it, I think, to... I think it's Don't Be Careless, Love. So I... The way he's singing high and he just can't quite do it. 
It's don't be careless love. Yeah, I remember listening to that episode and thinking, God, I don't know if I agree with that. Just, And maybe you're right. But for me, it's not there, not there, not there, not there, and then all there on Driving Rain. To me, Interesting. It's just, it sounds one way, and then on Driving Rain, it's another way. That's another voice, a different guy singing. Well, the way I hear it is Press to Play just sounds like Paul. Sounds like 80s Paul. He sounds fine. Flowers in the Dirt, that one place. But I do notice on Flowers, like on Distractions, that his voice is a bit fuller. Like his baritone is richer and fuller. I'm noticing yeah. that. But then when you get to Off the Ground, it's about half Press to Play voice and half Here Comes Old Man Macca. <laughs> and... <laughs> It, to, to us, it was noticeable. And then from then on out, we thought of it all as Old Man Macca. But then you hear, if you really listen to Flaming Pie next to McCartney 3, we're going to have to start talking about Middle Man Macca or something. Middle Man Macca. Yeah. <laughs> and he is a man who loves his middlemen. So. He does. Actually, yeah. I like that about him. Yeah, this is quite a bit of cold water in the face all of a sudden at the end of this album. And it, it's such a treat. I love the song. Must fix the fence by the acre plot Two young foxes have been nosing around The lambs and the chickens won't feel safe until it's done I must dig a drain by the carrot patch The whole crop spoils if it gets too damp And where will we be with an empty store when winter comes? When winter comes and food is scarce, we'll want our toes to stay indoors. When summer's gone, we'll fly away and find the sun when winter comes. Can I tell you something that is going to break your heart at first, but I promise there's a happy ending. Okay. It was written in 1971. (laughs) (laughs) Like all of his great songs. Maybe maybe break your heart is an overstatement. Uh, I did not like this at first. I just thought it sounded like he was, you know, singing about what he sees. You know, it just didn't. didn't Randy Newman singing about what he sees. Right, right. It didn't seem like a lot of, it's just like, oh, here's a list of different shit. All right, cool. Besides, this place is paradise. Sure is, except for Randy Newman. Randy Newman? Yep. Just sits there all night and day, singing about what he sees. Fat man with his kids and dog Drove in through the morning fog Hey there, Rover Come on over Well, it's nice to have music while we eat Red-headed lady Reaching for an apple Gonna take a bite uh, Nope, nope She gonna breathe on it first Wipes it on her blouse She takes a bite Chews it once twice, Here's the thing I The more I listen to this album The more... Not only do I fall in love with this song, but it's the one I walk around the house singing yeah. and I find humming to myself. Mm-hmm. And now it's become one of my favorite tracks on the record because it's so, I'm now enchanted with that melody. Yeah. It's a tricky little tune, actually. Yeah. So while the lyrics really, I don't love the lyrics, I do 
just adore the melody to the point where it has become a highlight on the record for me. I guess I like the lyrics more than Great Day. I mean, there's imagery here. It is singing about what he sees, but it's also, I mean, that's imagery, and the imagery's all connected, and yeah. it does a good job of not meaning anything obvious, by which I mean it, it lets you do what you want with the images. True. When winter comes And food is scarce We want our toes To stay indoors When summer's gone We're gonna fly away And find the sun When winter comes Well, this song is the reason the whole project exists in the first place, kind of. Because, as we talked about earlier in the episode, when Paul was going through and doing the Flaming Pie Box, he came across this, and it got him thinking about doing an animated project around it with Jeff Dunbar. So this is what he was in the studio working on finishing when he decided to keep going. And so I also love it for that reason. It's it's yeah. a gift because it get, kind of gave us McCartney 3 in a way. Yeah, that's a good point. But, you know, I'm always just happy to have these perfect little Paul and guitar songs. It gets me dreaming again about what it would have been like to have had a great just Paul and, and guitar album back when he, his voice was in its prime. Oh, yeah. Did this track remind you of anything? I mean, I mean, it reminds me of something and it's way out of left field. So I'm just wondering if it brought anything up for you. It reminds me of Winnie the Pooh. I, that's, oh, because. <laughs> Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. Win, no, not the, okay. not the, not Winnie, the melody. Uh, you mean. <laughs> okay, I'm not really <laughs> quite getting it. But, but well, no, the, the imagery does. You're saying the, the countryside yes. imagery. Yeah. As you may have heard la- uh, earlier in the episode, I have a two year old. And so we are watching a lot of Winnie the Pooh. And so the I'm ensconced in farming imagery all the time in animated form. And so that's when I was watching this, it was like, oh, no wonder you wanted to do an animated project around this because, yeah, it sounds like in the vein of Rupert or, you know, Winnie the Pooh, one of those kinds of properties. It's very sweet. It's very unassuming. It's very matter of fact. It's he's Paul singing about life, right? Yeah, yeah. It reminded me specifically of a song called, not even really a completed song called How'd You Do?, from oh. his little session with Donovan. <laughs> well, Bill and Lollipop are sitting on yeah. the little pepper dancing in your double decker shoe. I don't know. I can't believe you remember those words. <laughs> How'd you do? I well, tell We're going love- to play it. We're, I love it too. We're going to play it alongside this because that's the vibe I'm getting. The, the lyrics in When Winter Comes obviously make more sense than that. But the kind of fooling around on the guitar and the feel of it remind me a little bit of that little whatever it is, unfinished song. Sitting on the body, pack a dancing in the double decker shoe. I don't know. So how'd you do? Don't know how you do it. Lord, you know I try. But every time I try to do it, 
what is that? 1968? Isn't that White Album yeah. period when that was done? That is Paul and Donovan in the studio at the very end of 68. I think the same week or within a couple days of John doing Rock and Roll Circus. And Paul put that down with Donovan... And it's great because on that track... They're fooling around with I Will a little bit, right? And he, The two that jump out to me are that, the How'd You Do, because I just, I love that little... Had to suck a lollipop sitting on the woody pecker dancing in the double-decker shoe. I don't know. Yeah. And then there's the great track, unfinished track, Heather. Heather, not, that's not right. Not the Heather from Driving that's Rain. That's right. But, and, he- and that's a, a tantalizing little thing, isn't it? God, what? Those two... Those two should have just, I mean, of course they weren't going to, but God, (laughs) like, can you imagine just Paul in the studio, like my dark hour style, just him and Donovan just making little wispy, frothy batches of nothing. Just, (laughs) I would. From the giggling, Donovan sounded a little starstruck, actually. He was giggling at everything Paul did. Well, he had hung out quite a bit with Paul in Rishikesh, so they had known each other a bit at that time. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean. Donovan is just never going to be on that echelon with Paul. Yeah. So, but here's what I really love about that tape. And I know we're off on a big tangent here, but. It's a good tangent. There we go. McCartney 3. McCartney 3. Now we have some bonus tracks too, Chris, don't we? We do indeed. Now, I guess we should talk first about Winter Sun, which is not much. Yeah. Right? It's just a little video intro. Is that what it was? It's a trailer thing. Like a little bit of incidental music written for the purposes of that animated film he was working on, which I think is now up. Like, and I think you sent it to me the other day. It's on YouTube. I think the Jeff Dunbar animated version. Yes, it's up. Yeah. Yeah. So you can check that. Listeners should check it out. So Winter Sun, not much going on there. We'll play a little bit of it here, though. Then we have a couple of demos. Again, I don't have a ton to say about the demos. They seem to be demos. Well, the slide-in one is the remnant from the Kirsten recording. So you get to hear that song in its more raw state. There's no lyrics on it, I don't think, yet. And I just, again, I know I've professed my love for that track. I would like to profess it again <laughs> in this form. I Oh, God, I just love that. So that is worth a listen. I really enjoyed that. Now, it is cool that we get the phone demo, mm-hmm. the official Soda Jerker <laughs> film <laughs> phone demo of Kiss of Venus, and yes. it, it sounds quite polished. Yeah. I don't mean the recording, but the song sounds pretty polished in that demo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So here we go. Packed with illusions, my world is turned around. This golden circle has the most harmonic sound. 
have a few more i don't even know if i've heard both of these there's a lavatory lil studio outtake and a women and wives studio outtake yeah it's called um lavatory lil studio outtake and then the slide one is a dusseldorf jam and then you have the kiss of venus phone demo winter sun bonus track and then women and wives studio outtake yeah so those are the those are the batch that and uh, quite a contrast from Egypt Station, where there was so much, <laughs> so oh, many bonus tracks, they had to put well, them out a year later at Record Store Day or whatever. So many high quality bonus tracks. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Maybe there are some, but I don't get the feeling that there are. Seems like if there were, we wouldn't be getting these studio outtakes and such. But yeah, yeah. Now there's another track we want to look at. It's not an outtake from this album. It's not associated with this album. But Ryan and I. I think mentioned it, but failed to talk about it in our, our main Egypt Station podcast, which is the song In the Blink of an Eye from the movie Ethel and Ernest from 2016. And it's a good song. What do you think of this one? I'm so happy you sent this to me because it would yeah. have flown just completely by me. I love this track. It's another nice vocal from Paul. The song's construction, though, is interesting to me. It's really reminiscent, at least to my ear, of End of the End. In fact, okay. he, borrows some lyrics from it in places like songs have been sung and no reason to cry. He says both of those phrases in here. Huh. And then <laughs> the repeat of heading this way soon at the end there is reminiscent of magic to me from driving rain. So I'm hearing a lot of different songs in this. I just think i like the way he works those motifs on this track better than both of those songs respectively. Even though I like those tracks, I think this is a more, realized version of it so it took me by surprise i didn't know it existed yeah i really enjoyed the little orchestral interludes it's worth pointing out here that the orchestrator is and the film composer for the movie is carl davis but that's not why paul's involved that turns out to be a happy coincidence i had assumed well carl davis brought paul in somehow yeah but no it turns out paul was into raymond briggs he <laughs> you know Oh, the bogey music connection? Bogey music <laughs> connection. That's what it was. Yeah. yeah. So Raymond Briggs' Fungus the Bogeyman is where yeah. bogey music from That's McCartney so 2 came from. So That's he so has a long-standing interest in Raymond Briggs, and then it turns out that Carl Davis is working. What a coincidence. So it's Carl Davis and the Chamber Orchestra of London, and these orchestral interludes are composed by Carl Davis. And the orchestrations in general are by, he's kind of taking the, the George Martin role here. I can see your shadow Underneath the moon Maybe a winter cloudburst Heading this way soon Heading this way soon In the blink of the night Many songs have been sung Many lives have gone by We will never give up We will hold on to love With no reason to cry When I listened to the song, I thought first of Hope for the Future because of oh, the big yeah. sweeping orchestrations. I also thought a little bit of Through Our Love. 
Oh, yeah. You know, Through Our Love's a great song. This is a good song. But there's something about the epic sweep of the orchestral quality of those songs that this reminded me of a little bit. Yeah, I could totally see that. Hope for the Future is in this vein where it's... A little too grandiose. Yeah, it's kind of blown out, and it also reminds me of other tracks Paul's done. So it's almost like he's taking little bits and pieces and then sort of blowing them out in this big operatic way and representing them. And I'm, I'm here for it. I like it a lot. I will say this, though, about the song. One verse, one chorus. Lyrics are a bit underdone. Paul does this sometimes, but be nice to hear two full verses at least. <laughs> you uh, yeah. know, yeah. yeah. Another thing about the soundtrack album I wanted to point out is that "Walking in the Park" with Eloise is on that soundtrack. I love that song so much. How about that? <laughs> also, Paul plays all the instruments on this. Looks like he's credited with the vocals, guitar, drums, bass, piano, harpsichord, and synthesizer. Couldn't stop him if you wanted to. Couldn't stop. Him. Produced by Chris Egan. He's been around a long time and done a lot of stuff, although not a lot of stuff that's familiar to me. A lot of film music stuff, actually. Yeah. Fantastic Beasts and Ethel and Ernest and Napoleon. A lot of television music. So yeah. composer, orchestrator, producer. Sounds so cinematic, I guess, because that's what he's used to doing. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. It's probably his, his job in that in that case. But Right. So wonderful track. We do recommend everybody check that out. You can buy that on iTunes if you want to, if you don't want to just go with YouTube or Spotify. Should we jump to press here, Chris? I think we have some press. So I pulled three quotes from reviews that I found interesting. The first one is Mark Beaumont, New Music Express. He says... Ultimately, though he may not have been as short on outside space as the rest of us, Paul certainly intends McCartney 3 as a source of COVID consolation. You never used to be afraid of days like this, and now you're overwhelmed by your anxiety, he sings on Find My Way. Let me help you round. Let me be your guide. It's guide, not guy. (laughs) The quote here is guy. Uh, The pepperesque sees the day, sets out to rouse spirits for the post-vaccine new normal, and the closing when winter comes is pure isolationist empathy. I'm going to skip. If future archaeologists take this three-album series as a significant marker of his solo half-century, they'll conclude that Paul McCartney never stopped liberating. I have one from Rolling Stone, Rob Sheffield. McCartney 3 isn't ambitious like Egypt Station. Like his first two self-titled solo statements, it's a spontaneous palate cleanser after a labored studio project. McCartney came right after Abbey Road as he shrugged off the Beatles with acoustic ditties like Every Night and The Lovely Linda recorded at home on his spiffy new tape machine. I don't know if it was new or spiffy, but anyway, (laughs) (laughs) he borrowed it from EMI. McCartney 2 came right after the final Wings album, the underrated Back to the Egg. Oh no, did someone call it underrated? Oh, did I, did I give that a round of applause? Am I still clapping? There's more. It had a genuinely nutty number one hit with Coming Up and the lost gem, Temporary Secretary, which sat unnoticed for decades until the world suddenly decided it was brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. I didn't have to come around on that one. And the last quote is from Pitchfork, Stuart Berman. Other than the fact it arrives in a year when McCartney, like many of us, was stuck at home with a whole lot of extra time on his 
overly sanitized hands, <laughs> following a decade where he actively pursued modern pop relevance through collaborations with Mark Ronson, Ryan Tedder, and Kanye West and Rihanna. McCartney 3 finds its maker shacked up at his Sussex farmhouse, tuning out the radio to indulge his every scatterbrained whim. I don't know about that. But anyway, with, <laughs> with no desire to engage, this isn't scatterbrained enough if you ask me, but with no desire to engage with the contemporary musical landscape or absorb new influences, McCartney 3 is less adventurous and revelatory than its eponymous predecessors. Mostly it reiterates his well-established fondness for acoustic ditties, ruminative piano ballads, and hot rod rockers. And yet it's still offers intriguing evidence that, even when sticking to his usual lane, a septuagenarian multimillionaire pop star comfortably ensconced in his rural estate can still get up to some pretty weird shit when no one's looking. <laughs> oh, that's a good... <laughs> I'm happy it came around there at the end. Yeah, because, isn't that great? Yeah. yeah, Pitchfork is not known for its uh, kindness, let's just say. So it's it's... I think that's a fair assessment by Pitchfork. That's nice. I picked those three, but I was seeing mostly positive reviews. I wasn't seeing much negative. Yeah. yeah. So McCartney 3 performs strongly across a number of international charts, debuted at number one on the UK album chart on Christmas 2020. In the US, it debuted at number two on the Billboard 200 with 107 equivalent album units sold. It turns out that album units and album sales are different. So there's a subset of album sales from album units. I guess... Lots of listens count up to a unit or yeah, something? Yeah, there's a, there's a certain amount of listens that is equivalent to an album. I don't remember how many it is. Well, it's, let me tell you something. It's sad because I believe it was 104,000 actual album sales, right? Right. And so the, the other few thousand came from probably millions of listens. But Yeah, this yeah. was driven by the promotional stunts for the vinyl. Basically, I mean, it's Paul understanding and correctly identifying, or his team, that vinyl's back in a big way. Yeah. And we talked about this in the episode already, but he did the thing with Third Man. He did stuff with all these different retailers, which again, is nothing new doing retailer exclusives, Target, etc. But in this case, he's actively changing the front cover for all these different versions. And that's driving sales. And his team really did hit the ground running and did a magnificent job of getting this album out there and into people's hands and into fans' hands particularly. And it's just a little unfortunate that despite the niceties of Ms. Swift, she still beat him in the US because I'm sure he was looking for that consecutive number one. Although the UK number one showing is nothing to sneeze at because I think that's his first since God. The first McCartney album or something Since like Flowers that? in the Dirt. Flowers? That was a number one UK album? Oh, that wow. was number one, yeah. So this is first number one in the UK since Flowers. It never made it to number one in the US. It topped out at number two, yeah. but it, it was number one in Scottish albums charts, German albums charts, Dutch albums, and made it to number two in Austria, and made it to number five in Japan, number four in Portugal, number two in Sweden, number two in Switzerland. So... Good performance all around there. Look, he's still putting butts in seats, you know, figuratively yeah. speaking. He's he's still got a vibrancy that you can't really say of many acts from that era these days. I mean, oh, yeah. of course, something shocking like ACDC hitting it out of the park with an album this year is amazing too, but, you know, he predates them by, what, 15, 20 years, something like that, so... <laughs> Yeah, I had some closing thoughts just in watching the promotional cycle that Paul went on. I heard some interesting things, and 
I just thought it might be nice to end this show with that. There was one quote I'll start here with where he said, To thine own self be true is my mantra in life. It cuts through the craziness and helps me center. And I thought that was sweet because probably keeps him sane, like he says, you know. And while some of these reviews said phrases like stayed in his lane or didn't step outside the box or whatever they said, yeah, he's just being true to himself. And that's what he was doing almost his whole career, certainly with McCartney and McCartney too. So I just think it's nice that he's still in that headspace. It's probably very healthy to be in that headspace. Absolutely. And then the second bit here was Paul talking about his longevity. He says, there's a lot of things in my life that I'm surprised at. People say, after touring for all these years, don't you just hate it? Aren't you just fed up? And I'm like, no, I'm not. And that's me doing a bad Paul. (laughs) I suppose I am still looking for something new, but it's not that important. The most important thing for me is getting into a studio and thinking, what can we do now? It doesn't have to be something new. It can be something old. And on this record, actually, I had a couple of guitars that I've not played much. And when we got them out, this old Gibson, this beautiful thing. And I'm like, how have I not played this? And that Mm. just led me into a track. But I still enjoy what I do very much. And it all comes out as cliches. I feel lucky, but it's true. When I was a kid, all I wanted to do was plug a guitar into an amp and turn it up for a thrill. And that's still there. So it's not so much that I'm looking for something new, more that I'm looking for something to do that keeps me off the streets. Paul McCartney, ladies and gentlemen. One of my favorite John Williams quotes. Almost makes me cry every time I say it. Uh, He was asked ah, a few years ago, like 85, 86, any plans to retire? He said, a lifetime is not even enough to understand everything there is to know about music. So no, no plans to retire. (laughs) That's beautiful. Isn't that wonderful? That's really beautiful. Well, Chris, I wanted to take this opportunity to thank you for having me. This was so much fun. I just had a ball. I had a great time. Same here. An immense pleasure, Paul. And as I mentioned many times before, Take It Away is, you know, that was my favorite podcast. And it's uh, special for me to be able to appear on this with you. And of course, we're both thinking about Ryan and we appreciate all the listeners who have um, shown their support. They've been so amazing. Yeah. Yeah, The tribute episode we made, that was really special. Um, And we want to thank everybody for that. You know, I think we're far from done making stuff. There's so much more music to talk about. And, um, you know, at the risk of getting a little sappy at the end here, it, you know, it's what I'd be doing with Ryan anyway. <laughs> yeah. And so I do feel like he's uh, he's here with us. So Damn right. I love the sentiment. And this has been great. So we'll go out with some great Paul McCartney. And we'll see you for the next Paul McCartney album or maybe sooner. Maybe sooner. <laughs> Thanks. Bye, everybody. It was written that I would love you From the moment I opened my eyes And the morning when I first saw you Gave me life under calico skies I will hold you For as long as you like I'll hold you For the rest of my life Our theme music is Martha, My Dear by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, realized by Ryan Brady. 
Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast is powered by Pippa.